I'm Michael Shoulder. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, the actress Jane Alexander gets furious. You slimy, two-bit, no-dick mother-grabber. When Jane Alexander says it, you've got to believe it. Her acting career has spanned some 40 movies and TV shows and 100 plays. She also served as chairperson of the U.S. government's National Endowment for the Arts. She recalls being challenged by a legendary senator of the right. He asked me if I was a moral woman because he was concerned about egregious grants that the NEA was giving that involved homosexuality and sacrilege and as they defined it in Congress. After so many years on stage and screen and in public service, Ms. Alexander is now focused on another lifelong passion. She is an ardent conservationist, a subject she spotlights in her recent book, Wild Things, Wild Places. So I wanted to write a book about these heroes of conservation, these biologists, and I also wanted to make it hopeful because they believe that hope is a given. It's inherent in the word conservation. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, reintroducing Jane Alexander, recorded live at the 2018 Nantucket Book Festival. First, I have to tell you, this is my first time meeting you in person, but we had many conversations and I'm struck given your success on so many fronts at your humility but I wonder, why did you insist on the big chair? <laughs> well, I am the queen of the day, right? <laughs> it's hard to know where to begin, but let's begin, because this was your big breakthrough, with The Great White Hope, which was a Pulitzer Prize-winning Broadway play, and you broke through on that. Tell us the backstory of how you got that role, and what it was about, and where it went. The Great White Hope came out of a NEA grant of $25,000 to the playwright Howard Sackler for Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and I was a company member. And the play was developed there, and it may interest you to know the first time we read it, it read seven and a half hours long. (laughs) When we finally did it at Arena Stage, James Earl Jones played Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was the heavyweight champion in 1910. And it was interesting recently that the president pardoned Jack Johnson for the Mann Act. The pardon is worthy. And anyway, James Earl Jones played the Jack Johnson character, and I played an amalgam of three of his white mistresses sequentially in his life. One of them became his wife. And at Arena Stage, it ran four and a half hours long. When it got to Broadway, it ran three hours long. When it got to the movie, it ran an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> so things are lost, but also the wonderful thing that we both got to do it, James Earl and I, right along the path for the next couple of years. And I have to read from the New York Times review on October 4th, 1968. It's a glowing review of James Earl Jones. And then the reviewer says, of the vast supporting cast, two splendid characterizations stand out most remarkably Jane Alexander as Jack's girl, Ellie. Miss Alexander, as bright as a sparrow and with an almost spiritual beauty, makes a wonderful foil for Mr. Jones, a kind of frail and defiantly loving Desdemona to his 20th century Othello. Do you remember reading that review? I was of the school then that you don't read reviews. (laughs) 
However, it was read to us at Sardi's on opening night, and we all knew we had good reviews when we went to bed, the Post, the Times, the Daily News, and so on. So it ran for several years. James Earl and I were both in only for one year on Broadway because then we went to do the film. And to trim something, it's more than a trim, from seven plus hours to how long did you say it was on Broadway? Three hours? Yeah. Were the actors saying, trim it, trim it, trim it? Were you saying trim it? No, no, we never get involved in that kind of stuff. It was the producers. Who was going to come and see a play? <laughs> well, look at today, I shouldn't say that. Look at Harry Potter goes on and on, and so it could have happened. It was an epic piece. There were, if I'm correct, 203 roles played by 63 actors, 40 of whom were African-American. Nobody produces that kind of play on Broadway today. Nobody ever probably will if it's not a musical. That was a straight play, a drama. And it was very exciting to be a part of it, the height of the Black Power Movement, 1968. And it's interesting to think about that today because some of the same issues are with us and maybe transforming and taking different shape. But at the time, a lot of people didn't like to see a white woman with a black man on stage kissing each other, getting into a bed together. And there's one scene I have to have you read, or at least the key line. And it's early in the movie. I know what this is. She told me she doesn't even have to look at the script for this one. (laughs) But it's early in the movie, and you're Jack's lover, and the detectives are trying to get something on him because they don't like the fact that he defeated a white man. And the detectives have you in there, and they're questioning you, and they're trying to soften you up so maybe you'll give something away. I'm crazy for him, yes. I don't care. It's the truth. I didn't know what it was until I slept with him. I'll say it to anyone. He, he, he makes you happy that yes. way? And, and you love him. Do anything for yes, him. Yes, I would. And not be ashamed. No, never. Even if it seemed unnatural. Or, yes. And when you have, you were only what? making him happy too. Am I right? And then you start to get wind that they're trying to play you and hurt him. And you look at this detective and you say, You slimy, two-bit, no-dick mother grabber. Now, these were the days. (laughs) The movie came out in 1970. Those were the days that we had, remember censorship, guys? (laughs) We don't have so much of that anymore. But anyway, the censor said, no, no, we can't have that line in there. And I think it was Richard Zanuck Jr., who was the producer at 20th Century Fox, said, oh, no, no, she means no dick means no detective. You slimy two-bit, no detective mother grabber. So the censor said, oh yeah, okay, let it go. (laughs) Is there anyone who you would like to say that to today, by the way? Just out of curiosity? (laughs) No comment. No comment. Which actually gets us to another phase in your career. We'll jump around because when you said no comment was so diplomatic, you were the chairwoman of the National Endowment of the Arts. So you were at the height of your acting career and you got a call from Clinton's people, said we're going to nominate you to become head of the NEA, which was right in the middle of the culture wars at that time. Newt Gingrich on the right, others on the left, and tell me about, you had to really go through some rehearsals some practice to testify in front of these senators who didn't like a lot of what the NEA was funding. Do you remember some of those 
rehearsals, auditions, so that you would not have a misstep? Oh, yes. They were constant. I mean, I think anybody who has to be vetted by the FBI for any job has to go through all kinds of grueling exposure, if you will, of our past, and then also meet people who have to vote on you in the Senate, as I did. My first meeting was with Strom Thurmond. Some of you may remember Strom Thurmond, whom I describe as having hair not found in nature. I won't go into all the stories that are coming out now in the Me Too movement. If we had the Me Too movement back then, Strom Thurmond would not be in office, I promise you. (laughs) He was a groper, to say the least. But he didn't do any of that, of course, with me. However, he asked me if I was a moral woman because he was concerned about egregious grants that the NEA was giving that involved homosexuality and sacrilege, as they defined it in Congress. And I said, yes, I'm a moral woman. And, and then he said, well, the First Amendment is an excuse for doing something wrong. And you can't defend it if you're a moral woman. And I said, I think we have to agree to disagree, Senator. Whereupon he hardly ever spoke to me again. So that was my first meeting. And then I went on, of course, to Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms was a true Southern gentleman. We got along really very well. Anyway, it went from bad to worse. But you had to go and visit all of these senators. And of course, Ted Kennedy was my champion. Ted Kennedy was a man who got along with all of the people on the other side of the aisle and made deals with them at that time. And this is a kind of bipartisanship that we just don't see much anymore in those drills where you were preparing in your book on the NEA, Command Performance, which I highly recommend, great details throughout that and really a piece of American culture. Mm. So please get Command Performance by Jane Alexander. And you had sort of given us the transcription of some of your briefing teams. Senior attorney played Jesse Helms because they were concerned about him. And he said, Miss Alexander, I don't know if that's... That's good. Miss Alexander... (laughs) How will you make sure that the taxpayer does not have to pay for obscene art like Robert Mapplethorpe's homosexual photographs? (laughs) And your answer during practice was, do you remember? No, tell me. (laughs) So diplomatic. Senator, I have not seen the photographs you mentioned. That was absolutely true. I mean, in many respects, honesty is the best policy. I didn't want to get into defining the art or even commenting on it, and I never did through my whole time at the NEA. I never said, I think this is good art and this is bad art. I mean, it's all in the eye of the beholder anyway, is it not? So right around this time, and this is where I had to stop reading the book because I sort of was in shock for you. Here you are telling the story of you're going to give up your acting career for a little while. You had had a hit Broadway show at the time, which was, remind me... Oh, yeah, Sisters Rosenzweig. Your career was riding high, so you really had to give up a lot in terms of that, and income as well. And then you describe a scene in the book, which I'll let you expand upon, where you get a call. And this is the time where the FBI is sort of looking into you and making sure, you know, you're going to be a good candidate. And you get a call from the assistant DA of the county of New York. Could you and your husband come to my office at your earliest possible convenience. And of course, there was the chance that, well, I guess there wasn't the chance that they would find something on you. There's no skeleton in your closet, right? Because if there is, please tell us now. (laughs) 
Not that I know of, no. <laughs> so they called you in and you went into the courthouse the next day and tell us the news that you It wasn't got. the courthouse, it was the DA's office. Yes, sorry. And she was in a tiny little cubicle of a room, very good-looking young woman, and the desk was right there, and she said, please sit down. My husband and I sat across, and she said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have nothing. <laughs> and we're like, I, I, I thought this was about being vetted for the NEA. And she says, no, no, no. We've been investigating your accountant for the past four years, and he has embezzled nine clients and you have been taken for everything, except I never refinanced the house that he wanted and it was all in my name and he couldn't get our house up in Putnam County at the time. So Ed and I had to start again from scratch and we formed a client's group, the nine of us, to go after the money. We hired a detective. He never found anything, so it must have been offshore somewhere. The good news was New York State prosecuted him as an enemy of the state, this accountant, and he was put away for 12 years, got out after three, and then disappeared and probably found the money in the Bahamas, the Seychelles, who knows where. What's so interesting about that, too, because it really gets to, you know, we all ask ourselves, who can you trust, and how do you know you can trust a person? And this was a person who it sounds like you and your husband really deeply yeah. trusted he was a friend of 23 years. But we got to know the detectives pretty well, and I really, really like these men and women. And they informed me, they say, you know, we estimate 10% of the population are sociopaths. That's what we see in a lot of white-collar crime. They have no remorse. They just go for it. And indeed, Jim, our former accountant, when he was in jail, was writing me letters, <laughs> writing me letters saying, please help me get out. Anyway, the good news is this. My husband, my late husband, he's since passed away last year, Ed Sharon was a major director of stage, screen, and television. And he loved freelance television, which is what he was doing. And Dick Wolf, whose name you may know from all the law and order, the next day after we were in the papers about being embezzled, Dick calls up and says, Ed, your loss is my gain. You're coming to work for me full time. Ed had always wanted to be freelance. Ed said, Dick, I bow down to you. Thank you. And Ed made that show, Law and Order, what it is today, the Mothership show, the original, because it was going to go under after its first season. He came in. He brought in all the writers and most of the actors that you knew after the first couple of years. And he made an incredible show. And now look at all the spin-offs that came from that. And Dick Wolf can do anything. He's the king. So Dick was emboldened and, I mean, really felt very grateful for Ed and for our disaster. <laughs> you know, let me ask you, because it sounds like you handled that crisis with great composure overall. You certainly bounced back from it, which brings me to something you said about the role you played, you played Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And you played her from what ages? It was the TV series. 17 to 63. From 17 to 63. I was much more comfortable in the 17-year one at that time. I was 35. The and prosthetics were uh, grueling and awful. They look awful today because they've gotten so much better on television. And you said you inhabited that role, and you said, I felt 
the ugly duckling that Eleanor believed herself to be, emerge into a swan in her later years through perseverance, determination, and compassion. She taught me how to overcome adversity, and it was a lesson I took to heart in my own life from the 1970s on. You really learned from embedding yourself in that character. Totally. I just, I got her. Ed Herman and I had two years. ABC did not get a green light on the project to do the Roosevelts because the studio executives would say, well, who would be interested in the Roosevelts? But it was from Joe Lash's book about Eleanor primarily, Eleanor and Franklin. So Edward Herman, who played FDR, and I happened to live in Putnam County, New York, not too far from High Park. And we spent those two years really, really researching these characters. I poured through hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of photographs of Eleanor and listened to many tapes, which was really a godsend for me to be able to do that over such a long period of time. I like to work from inside out. I'd like to understand what the feelings, the emotions of a character, of a person are. And then I build on the outside after that. Edward works exactly the opposite. Edward Herman always had to get what he looked like first, and then he would find the core later. So that's two ways actors mainly work, and they're equally fine. But finally, there was a photograph I came across with Eleanor when she was 14 years old. She was standing next to a pony, and she was looking in the camera, full frame picture, looking in the camera, and something went whoom to me. I said, oh my God, I know what's going on, I know what's going on. And then I carried that, and I think that never left her, you know, that gawky young girl, because she was the daughter of one of the great five Hall sisters of the time, who in the late 1800s were the beauties of New York society. And you can go back and look at them online and see what stunning five sisters those were. She was the daughter of one of them, and her mother was always very disappointed in her. And her parents died young. She was an orphan by the time she was 10 or 11. Did you have something personal in your life to draw on, to relate to what you saw in her in childhood, or was it just empathy? No, it turned out to be empathy. But what an extraordinary human being. I mean, I just... It sounds like you've actually called on that experience at times in your life. Have you, whether it was the embezzling crisis or some other difficult time, has Eleanor Roosevelt come back into your consciousness? And if so, what was the time? Well, in hard times. I think we all have to have perseverance. We have to have faith. We have to have hope. I mean, human beings have hope anyway. You can't get up in the morning if you don't have hope. It's a given, but to keep faith, keep perseverance, to keep persistence in the face of everything that wants to bring you down or you feel wants to bring you down is sometimes very, very difficult. Is there a scene, though, specifically that you remember from that miniseries? Is there something from her life, in addition to that picture, that just, she overcame that, I can overcome this? She was deeply aggrieved when she discovered that Franklin was having an affair with Lucy Mercer and had been having an affair for quite a while and that her two eldest children, Anna and James, knew about it. So that was deeply hurtful to her, but she managed to rise above it. I have to come back. You had mentioned the Me Too movement. 
you were in a business that's become infamous now for its connection to the Me Too movement. Did you ever experience any of those Me Too moments? I hate to get too personal, but I really don't. Well, you know, <laughs> the truth was, it was known. The casting couch was a fact. You came to New York, there was a whisper network that said, okay, don't go to him, don't go to him. Not alone. He's gonna ask you up to his office. You know, there was the whisper network, we were all part of it. So, did I experience it? Yes, of course. Our father, Thomas Bartlett Quigley, who was the doctor for the Harvard football team. He was an orthopedic surgeon. Anyway, my dad, when I was eight years old, taught me how to knee a guy in the groin. <laughs> and I remember this distinctly and saying to daddy, daddy, won't that hurt him? He said, that's the point, Janie. <laughs> so I grew up with that kind of ethic, you know? So yeah, I don't want to get into the politics of the Me Too movement right now, but it was a different time for me. I'm sure everybody's curious, did you ever have to use that advice? He was mainly talking about a guy on the street who might come and apprehend you and that kind of thing. No, I didn't have to do it, thank goodness. Let me ask you, because you talk about the importance of hope, and this is a great way to get into your current passion and lifelong passion, protecting the environment, and your book, Wild Things, Wild Places, is a really compelling adventure journey, but educational one, through some of the wildest places on earth, and you've been taking these journeys for 30, 40 years or more. Mm. Tell us, as Eleanor Roosevelt gave you the ability to be resilient, can you tell us anything about any of those journeys that right now still gives you hope that we can either reverse or arrest the accelerated pace of environmental degradation? Yes, I wanted to write a book with a lot of the stories of the journeys that I've taken with field biologists since the early 80s when I first met Alan Rabinowitz, who is arguably the great cat expert of the world, large cat expert, and founded an organization called Panthera to save the great cats of the world. And Alan and I met down in Belize in the early 1980s, and we became best friends. He's still my best male friend. And I saw a young man, he's about 10 years younger than I am, move from a research scientist in Belize studying jaguars, which was one of his first study sites, through the years become an ardent conservationist and needing to protect the animals and the habitats that they lived in. And this became the modus operandi for all field biologists that I visited from then on, and is today. Maybe not the new ones coming right out of college who are just interested in studying an animal and have a grant to do so. But once you get into the passion of a particular species or a genus, as field biologists tend to do, E.O. Wilson and ants, you can think of that, it becomes incumbent upon the scientist and everybody he or she meets to save this animal and the habitat. And then it becomes a different kind of life. And they're juggling so many balls, I can't tell you. 
administration, political. Alan Rabinowitz, right now he's in Honduras walking the Jaguar corridor. The Jaguar corridor was something Panthera set up to save the genetic diversity of Jaguars along their whole length from Mexico down to Chile, Argentina. And it involves 18 different countries. So Alan has created a corridor, they've mapped a corridor where the Jaguars actually do transverse through the countries. And they're trying to save this corridors for genetic health. And Alan meets with the prime ministers or the heads of the countries. He meets with the ranchers. He meets with people in local areas because astonishingly, they found Jaguars crossing in a 20-yard wide swath at night between houses or huts. They are so stealthy, but they just need that area to get through. So this has involved Alan all the time, and then raising money, as I said, the CEO of Panthera, and so on. So I wanted to write a book about these heroes of conservation, these biologists, and I also wanted to make it hopeful, because as I said, they believe that hope is a given. It's inherent in the word conservation. You're going to conserve something, you're gonna preserve it. So every story, I hope, in every chapter has that little glimmer of what is happening and what they're doing around the world. And the news is actually very, very good. I mean, we have so many people now that are working to save habitats and animals all around the world. And you may go online and find thousands and thousands of organizations that will save anything from a snail to sloths in Costa Rica. So that's what my book is really about. It's about one or two stories involving each biologist or in sometimes just trips that I take alone or with friends that have some hope in them. So the hope comes from the individuals who are really devoting their lives, and as long as they're around, it sounds like you're not going to lose your hope. Oh, and, no. And by the way, as an actor, it sounds like you have the director-producer instinct in you as well, because you were sizing up the stage before we came on, and, <laughs> you know, where are the chairs, and you have a very interesting, compelling way of putting that book was about your travels, but it was really about the people you encountered and putting the spotlight on them. And I just want you to tell one story, because that Alan Rabinowitz is really a fascinating guy, and his childhood, just briefly, and how he got into this field of having that bond with animals, because it's really an amazing story to me to hear how people sometimes find their path. He grew up not far from JFK Airport, and he was a stutterer from a very early age and even put in a special ed class because at that time didn't really know how to deal with stutterers. And his father was a vigorous coach, athletic coach at a school nearby and would take Alan on days off to the Bronx Zoo because he saw that Alan had an affinity with animals from a very early age. He would go into a closet and be able to talk to his pet turtles and things like that. At the Bronx Zoo, Alan became truly enamored of the big cats and jaguars in particular, because there was a female jaguar there. I actually remember that jaguar. And at that time, zoos did not have 
such extensive, large outdoor enclosures as they do today. You may remember they really were cages, large cages. And the jaguar, the female jaguar, will go back and forth and back and forth, hitting her paw against each wall. So she'd made even a little dent in the concrete in the wall on either side where her paw would go. And Alan made a promise to her because he saw her as a voiceless creature like himself. He made a promise that he would find freedom for her and all animals who were captive or could not have a free life. And he held that promise. That's what he's doing today. I think there is a real place for zoos, and he does too, and anybody who has ever worked with them, like Alan worked with the Wildlife Conservation Society, which oversees all the New York zoos, including the Bronx Zoo. And the zoos are getting better and better at caring for animals. So it's not about that. It's about making sure that we still have them in the wild, because biodiversity is one of the most important things that we keep alive. What biodiversity means, actually, is everything has its place and it has a purpose. We don't understand what that is yet because the world is far too complex. So as the Pope said in his encyclical last year on climate, we have to go on faith that every single creature, including the smallest nematode, is of value in our society, in our life. And I believe this as well. It's all too complex for us to understand. But just as all human beings are very valuable and bring something to the table with their life experience and their opinions, every single one of them, we have to believe that all these living things that have come onto this earth are of equal value. I'm going to thank Jane Alexander. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.